Psalm 37. Oh, hey, brother. Man, it's been a lot. How are you guys? We'll be with you in a second. We used to be friends a long time ago. <laughs> oh, God bless you. You're looking a little grayer. What about? I can't talk, can I? Yeah. Wonderful to see you guys. We're in Psalm 36. And we're doing Psalms. And so, uh, for a while. And then we'll decide on what book to do next. So Brother Chuck will pick us, uh, take us further in Psalms next week. By the way, did you know Chuck and Maureen had a grandbaby? I believe Friday the baby was born. I think that's number six. I may be a little wrong about this. Their daughter had a had a, a baby one. I can't remember which daughter, Brenda. It was Reagan? Okay. Oh, thanks, Pam. Reagan had a baby, and, and uh, everything's fine, I'm told. And so that's wonderful. Speaking of perfect babies, <laughs> I've got to just embarrass the parents a little bit. They have a seven-week-old right there named Sage. And uh, if you get a chance to see Sage before you go by, she is a doll. I mean, that is a girl. Her name is Sage Eden Kelly, a great, beautiful name. She's just seven weeks old. This is her first time in church. And so she has better attendance than some of you. (laughs) And she was just a doll in the service, I'm told, while Brother John was preaching, not a peep. And I made no such guarantees to the parents in this room. (laughs) So if you hear something loud and noisy, it might be Sage. It might be someone else. We'll see how it goes. (laughs) But anyway, she is a blessing, and we're glad to have her here. Congratulations. There are the grandparents right back over there and so on. And Oh, so she's eating now. Okay, so we got a few minutes. We'll be, we'll be, all, we'll be all right. Psalm 36. Listen, I'll tell you, this is a psalm of contrasts. Our nature contrasted with God's. You have to see the two together to appreciate both. You have to see God's nature to appreciate the corruption of our nature. And uh, that's what David's going to do in this particular psalm. By the way, uh, it's written by David. Do you, do you agree? Yes, yeah, it says right there, doesn't it? A psalm of David. You know what else it says? Does it say this in your Bible? For the choir director. Do you have that? Do you know, what does it say? Chief musician. Chief musician. Good, good. You know, uh, that is not editorial. That is not added by translators. That's not an explanatory comment in addition to Scripture. That is inspired Scripture. That is in the inspired text, that phrase, for the chief musician, or it's rendered in some others for the choir director. And that's because what we're, what we're doing in Psalms is reading ancient Israel's hymn book. These were all put to songs. Think about it. They would sing these. Uh, sometimes I wish, oh, God, I wish we had the tunes. What would the tunes sound like? We don't, but we have what's even, what's even better. We have the lyrics to these songs. Why did they sing them? Well, I think it aided memorization. You know how certain songs you've heard years ago stick in your mind and they come up? And that's what they did. They were memory devices. So this is a song. And so you see things like for the choir director, for the chief musician. It's a musical notation. In some of the psalms, do you see the word selah? Selah? That means pause, like a musical interlude. Sometimes you'll have notes that determine the speed with which or the volume with which the psalm was to be sung. So it's just... 
Fascinating. What we're about to read is a song. Here's how it begins. Verse 1. Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. So this is the first insight into human nature. It's not a pretty picture. Here's what it's saying. We hear the voice inside of us beckoning us to sin. Transgression has a voice and we lend our ears to it. Why? Because we're sinners. If we were not sinners, then the inner voice giving impetus to our sin would not be heard. We'd be hearing uh, voices calling us to do good. Instead, we hear a voice on the inside telling us to do bad. If it feels good, do it. You deserve a break today. Don't worry about God. Who's to tell you what's right? Who's to tell you what's wrong? Come on, you're not hurting anybody. We hear this voice, and it has a hearing because of our nature. I hope you're past the day when you think we were born morally neutral. We are not. We are born with a sin nature. Where would we get it? It's inherited from our parents. Oh, yeah, but it goes even further back from Adam and Eve. It's just passed on to us. So you see a cute little baby like Sage. Sage is just a doll. I wish I could say all babies are cute, but I do do that when the parents are showing them. <laughs> but let's just face it there. You know, some kids look like little rats, don't they? I mean, they just, they just do. And, but, but you say, oh, what a cute little rat. I mean, what a cute, you know. But, anyway, but, but, but the parents, they're surely cute. But, but you can see evidences of inherited sin nature even in a blatantly cute little baby. Good night. This whole phrase, demand feeding, where did that come from except from the self-centered, self-involved, narcissistic, inborn nature of this little kid? You say to the mom, what schedule is the baby on? Whatever schedule the baby wants to be on. I want what I want when I want it. That's called narcissism. Folks, that's an evidence of one sin nature. I don't care how cute and cuddly they are. They're wretches. They're born in sin. That's just... Sage is not listening to this, is she? So here's the... I hope you're past thinking we're born morally neutral. What's more, I surely hope you're way past thinking we're good. Born with a good, with a good nature. We just, you know, we... We make mistakes from time to time. That's not true. Are you not a student of human history? This is not a faith statement. This is just a logical observation. Look at us. How have we manifested ourselves throughout the millennia and down to our very day? Folks, we sin because we are sinners. And because we are sinners, there's an inner voice that beckons for our attention to sin, and we give it a hearing. We don't say, be quiet, be still, that's wrong. We say, that sounds good. That's one of the marks of human nature. Secondly, there is no fear of God before their eyes, before his eyes. Before the ungodly. Well, there's no fear of God. This sums it up. Um, by the way, that phrase is uttered by Paul again in Romans chapter 3, verse 18. We're going through Romans on Wednesday nights. and We'll soon, soon be here in this particular verse, Romans three eighteen. Paul says the same thing. There is no fear of God in their eyes. You know what the point is? 
the nature of man as recognized by David in the Old Testament is the same nature of man recognized by Paul in the New, is the same nature of humankind recognized by us today. Though there have been a lot of changes societally, in terms of our inherent human nature, there's been no change. We've surely not evolved into a higher state morally, not at all. And if anything is true, we're devolving. But, 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 but folks, this statement, there is no fear of God before his eyes, explains why we have such a proclivity to sin. I mean, listen, if there is no fear of God, why don't we just sin, sin all the more? If it feels good, do it. You know, sometimes when we use the term fear of God, it sort of has a positive connotation. Uh, it means to reverence God. So someone might say, are you a God-fearing person? That doesn't mean do you shake in your boots. It means do you give him due respect. So that's a good connotation. That's not what the word fear here means. The word fear here means fear, dread, terror. There ought to be, but is not, a healthy Fear, dread of a holy God when one is listening to the inner voice beckoning to sin, that one continues to sin with no fear of God, no expectation of accountability or judgment, no notion that God is there and that he will intervene and hold one accountable. There is no fear. There's no respect. There's no notion of God. This is not a person who denies the reality of God, this is a person who denies, this is worse, the relevance of God. Folks, it's very difficult to find an atheist. Did you know that? They exist, but a pure, true, honest atheist. It's very hard to find. But it's not difficult to find people I would call practical atheists. What does that mean? It means if you polled them with this question, do you believe in God? They would say, they'd answer in the affirmative, of course I do, I believe in God. But then the way they live out their lives in practice betrays, they don't think that God who exists has any relevance to them. That's a practical atheist. Some of us live life that way. So just to believe in God doesn't get you brownie points, even Satan believes in God. It's not just to believe in the existence of God. It's to believe that he must be part of the formula of our lives since he is the giver of life with whom each of us must make do. But the ungodly person, that is to say the one moving in a, in a godless direction, doesn't believe there are any ramifications from living independent of God. There is no fear of God before his eyes. His eyes reveal, he sees before his eyes lots of opportunities to do his own thing and to sin, but he cannot see the relevance of God. It's a spiritual blindness. Not only that, verse 2, it flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. He pats himself on the back, he or she. Why? That person says, no one, including God, is going to discover my sin. He flatters himself. He says, I'm getting away with this. No one's going to know. I'm cool. No one's going to, it's private. 
No one's going to... He pats himself on the back with regard to the discovery of his iniquity and also the hatred of it. God doesn't hate it. You Christian people, back off. You Bible thumpers, give me a break. Obviously, God doesn't hate what I'm doing. First of all, it feels good. Secondly, he's not judging me. He's not wiping me out. Where's all this condemnation you people are talking about? I'm not burning in hell. That's actually the attitude that plays out when one is moving in a in a godless direction. No one's going to discover. And because of this arrogance, he flatters himself with regard to the discovery of his iniquity. Sinners get real sloppy in their sin. Did you know this? They get real careless. You know what always amazes me? How can it be that people, not just of normal intelligence, but in many cases above normal intelligence, who are having, let's just say, um, clandestine affairs or some kind of sexual activity uh, that's not gone public. Don't you think they'd be smart enough not to conduct this liaison through text messages and emails? Am I missing the point here? You know, this congressman in New York who's busted, uh, he's a bright guy. He's well-educated. You hear me? He's very articulate. How does he engage in this sexting act? By the way, that's a new word, sexting. It didn't exist in my day. Apparently, that's when you use text to do sexual stuff. Sexting, they call it. So he was engaged in sexting, photos of him, photos of his partners, uh, compromising ways, back and forth. It, 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 it comes public. See, the, the person given over to what each of us has our sin nature, the person without restraint, the person listening to the inner voice of transgression, the person, that person flatters himself by patting himself on, I could do this, no one's gonna know, I can still be your leader, I'm electable, everything's cool. What hatred of sin? Give me a, he flatters himself with regard to the discovery of his iniquity. See, that's what, that's kind of what it's sort of saying there. Furthermore, verse three, the words of his mouth, are characterized in two ways. Wickedness, it does harm, deceit. Deceit, it's a lie, it's not true. Wickedness and deceit. Folks, is it just me or is lying on the rise? I mean, for crying out, we've always always been liars. Uh, Otherwise, we wouldn't need the commandment that says don't do it. So I know we've been doing it, but now it's like a national pastime. No, it's an international pastime. It's acceptable behavior. The only way to be, for most, not all, to be electable is to lie. You know, during election season, you have to say things you neither have the willingness nor ability to follow through on. Those are called campaign promises. You either won't keep them or, in most cases, can't keep them. You cannot be the savior of the world because you're not the savior. So you, you can't tell me you're going to be the economic savior, the political, military. You can't when you're just like me. You know, I told you, I would vote immediately for the candidate who essentially said, hey, look, we've made a mess of things, haven't we? But don't blame it on me. You've, made a, you've contributed to it. It's all of us. In fact, things are so bad on all fronts in uh, our country. Um, if you elected me uh, to the office for which I'm running, um, I'm probably not going to, to, to be able to reverse what's been done in any appreciable manner, but I promise you I'll do my best not to make it worse. Hey, I vote for you. 
I mean, give me some honesty, doggone it. Don't be making promises you can't keep and fool me into thinking I ought to believe you. That's called lying. Am I missing something? That's called lying, lying. It's like a national sort of a pastime. And this is, the, this is one of the characteristics of ungodliness. Words are characterized by wickedness and blatant deceit. But I mean, it says right there, he has ceased to be wise and to do good. See the word wise? Uh, the Hebrew concept of wisdom has nothing to do with intellect. It's not uh, smarts. It's not knowledge of stuff. The Hebrew word for wisdom actually means skill in living life. Skillful living. That's the Hebrew concept of wisdom. So you've heard the expression, the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. Books like uh, Ecclesiastes, and Proverbs, part of the Israel's wisdom literature. That, that, that's not stuff to give us information. That's stuff to help us to live life with greater skill. Have you ever known really, really, really smart people who don't seem to possess skills in living life? They're all over the place for crying out loud. Brilliant people who have multiple affairs, multiple marriages, multiple divorces, kids in disarray, addictions of various kind, indebtedness up to their heads, their ears, whatever the expression is. They don't seem to be wise in managing money, managing wives, managing family, (laughs) managing relationships, managing their own bodies. Uh, It's the direction of ungodly. By the way, this, this is a picture of us. Did you know that? It's not a pretty picture, but I guess we have to face it. That's the way it is. Just not wise. Not wise in... In living life. Verse 4, he plans wickedness upon his bed. That's not what the bed is for. At the end of the day, your head hits the pillow. You know what you ought to be doing? You ought to be saying, God, what a day this is. It was kind of a challenging day. Oh, my goodness. There were times when I didn't think I was going to get through it. But apparently I did. You know why? Because you got me through it. Thank you, God. And you can say, and God, not only was the day filled with challenges, there was blessing in it. There was blessing in it. Oh, God. Thank you for the sun. Thank you for the rain. God, thank you for being my savior. Good night, God. We'll talk again tomorrow morning. (laughs) Instead, in essence, this is saying metaphorically, the ungodly person is using literally every waking hour to think not about godly things, but about ungodly things, you see. He plans wickedness upon his bed. He sets himself on a path that is not good. He does not despise evil. Okay. Now there's a radical, extreme, noticeable change in direction. It's an attention getter for those who are singing. By the way, they're singing the first four verses. Wow. Hey, let's sing together. We all stink. We are evil to the core. We are rotten and don't have a prayer. If there's an opportunity to sin, we're going to do it because it's who we are. We all are ungodly. Let's sing it again one more time. I mean, that's a... <clears throat> Because it was true. It was true. It was true. There's no fluffy songs. This is true. But now everything changes, not just the crescendo. Now the lyric, the theme changes. Now enough with what we're like. Now what about what God's like? That's what you get in verse 5. David begins, your loving kindness. Wow. 
one of the premier attributes of God, that one, loving kindness. In Hebrew, it's the word chesed, chesed. It would be spelled C-H-E-S-E-D. But don't dare say chesed. Don't say chesed. It would be chesed. It would be chesed is the word. So it's a very unique, uh, it's a unique word. Um, it's not just love. There's all kinds of love songs and stuff like that. And we've sort of minimized what love is. We're not talking about romantic love, surely not erotic love. Um, um, it's, it's chesed love. Um, it's not the love that is dependent on the attractiveness of the object of the love. You know, we, we love people when, they, when, when they're lovable. <laughs> Um, and sometimes divorce from them in various ways when they're not, either physically or in different ways. It's not that. This is the kind of love that persists without recourse to externals. The lover is choosing to love in spite of externals. The, the lover is just choosing to love. It's God. Uh, uh, other words for this are steadfast love or unfailing love or loyal Covenant love. It's God's love for those who are part of a covenant with him. A covenant of grace. It's a covenant of marriage. This is God's love. The New Testament equivalent word would be grace. This is not God being fair to us. This is not giving us what we deserve. This is God giving us what we don't deserve. Him, his favor, his love, his delight in spite of us. It's a marvelous thing. It's so hard for us because we don't have uh, an analogy in life. Um, a, mo- a mom and dad's love for a baby, I suppose, comes close. But it's not perfectly it. A husband and wife's love, I suppose, comes close. But that's not, it's not the same. Because even those relationships are a function of the lovability of the object of the love. The, lo- the love quotient can come and go. But that's not chesed love. That's not God's love. You know, I don't want to be degrading of these lofty concepts, but this helps me. Please forgive me if, it's, if it is de- degrading. For me, what helps me most to understand this is the way my dogs respond to me. <laughs> Isn't that a weird deal? My wife and I woke up this morning. We opened our door. We hear the t- our two doggies outside. <laughs> They're just living to see us. We emerge from our room, we open the door, and they are just beside themselves. They're dancing and prancing and jumping and bouncing off walls, and then they go over to their toy box, which is always well-equipped. We didn't give toys to our kids, but our dogs are... (laughs) And they select just the one they think will be pleasing to us, and they both have these toys, little stuffed animals in their mouth, you know, and they're just coming to us, you know, and and we, we didn't feed them yet, we didn't do anything, this is just... Why are you loving? I didn't give anything. And it's as if they say, oh, it's just for who you are. It's a dogging. Yeah, I get deep theological insights from my doggies. Instead of seminary, I should have gone to a kennel. <laughs> but it, This is... Brenda, could you, could you be a little quiet? Okay, it would be helpful to me, okay? So this is the, uh, uh, I'm distracted. <laughs> this is the, uh, where was I? 
Um, and I was in the kennel. Okay, thank, thank, thank you. Um, th- this is the loving kindness of God. But it, and and look at the extent of it. It extends to the heavens. What does that mean? You can't fathom it. You can't limit it. You can't exhaust it. It extends to the heavens. Listen to me. Your love for God and mine has limits. Let's sadly admit to it. Surely our love for one another has limits, but his love for us has no limits. It extends to the heavens. Folks, we got to get this. We got, it's just different. It's incomparable. Not only that, your faithfulness reaches to the skies. So here's the second attribute of God to feast on. Faithfulness. It's the Hebrew word emunah. E-M-U-N-A-H. E-M-U-N-A-H. Faithfulness of God. It could be translated mercy. You know what it means? It means though we be unfaithful, he remains faithful. It's the emunah attribute of God. It means his faithfulness is a function of who he is, not of who we are. Because of the emunah, the faithfulness of God, we have eternal security. You see, if God has saved us, and if he saved us because he's a a savior who is faithful to save then I cannot relinquish it because it doesn't have to do with me. I'm merely the recipient of it. I don't merit it. I don't have to sustain it. I don't have to hang on to God to remain saved. He is faithful. Again, his faithfulness is not increased or diminished on the basis of anything outside of him, including us. It emanates from him internally. The first four verses are about what emanates from us internally. This is about what emanates from God eternally. We must not clone him, conform him to our image. He's categorically different. He's characterized by loving kindness and by faithfulness. And in verse 6, there's another quality of God to rejoice in. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. When you think of a mountain, it's a poetic metaphor of stability and of strength and unchangeableness. It's not shaken. A mountain is not shaken by weather, wind, and so on. Neither is God's intent on doing what's right. Nothing can cause God to do what's wrong. Not changing circumstances, not us, not the current of the day, not winning a popularity contest. No, the righteousness, the, the right, doing right by God can be counted on. Now, it doesn't mean we understand him fully, but we ought to accept this. He's characterized by righteous. You and I can do the right things from time to time, but that doesn't mean that characterizes our behavior. But it does characterize God. He doesn't just do right things. He is righteous. So doing right is consistent with him. Therefore, it's like a mountain because he never operates in a way that is inconsistent. And then it says, here's the fourth quality of God, your judgments. So we've had his loving kindness, his faithfulness, his righteousness. Now this, your judgments are like a great deep. This means God is a decision maker. He's going to decree certain things. He has thoughts and he has plans. They're profound. They're deep. You cannot plumb the depth of the wisdom of God's judgments any more than you can plumb the depths of the sea. 
There's a New Testament equivalent. I believe it's at the end of Romans 11 when Paul says, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable are his ways. Paul said, I'm looking into a deep well of the wisdom of God, but it's a well that is bottomless. I can never plumb its depths. This is the judgment of God. Now, folks, we got to get this. Because in the decree of God, there's room for loss and pain and hurt and suffering and death. Those things would not exist if God did not permit those. We can't, in the midst of those things, question his judgments. Now we can as an emotional expression. Please don't let me stifle your expression of emotion. But when we come to our senses, we have to know, oh, God. Because of your loving kindness and faithfulness and righteousness, your judgments, which I cannot fully comprehend, are right and good. And one day I'll understand it. We're going to get to heaven. I keep saying we. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to get to heaven one day. And I often wonder what will it be like? What will we do? For one thing, we'll worship like crazy. Undistracted, tireless worship. We'll dance. <laughs> Baptists will dance. No, 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 don't get nervous because we will have rhythm then. <laughs> yeah, no, it'll be different. We'll be actually able all to clap on the right note. Wow, it'll be like heavenly. So I know we're going to worship. Um, but there's something else. I sort of feel like there'll be some big corporate, uh, we will expel This, almost all together without planning it, when we see the Lord Jesus face to face, we'll go like this. Oh, now I got it. That's what we're going to (laughs) do. Suddenly, everything that's been incomprehensible, suddenly in a moment, will come together and we'll say, oh, that's what was up. We will say, what a master plan. How intricately you wove All of the events of life. A leads to B. B leads to C. B was hurtful. B was a loss. C was horrible. Oh, no, I got it. You used it all for good. Oh, God, what a master plan. You will say, you will say to him, God, I knew of you, the master planner, then, but now I see the master plan. I did not see the master plan. I couldn't. Oh, God, thanks. Thanks for letting me off the hook. Because even then, sometimes when I didn't see the master plan, I really shook my fist at you. I said, what's up? I said, I hate you. I said, how could you be good? This is so bad. I said all that, God, you knew that was the language of a hurt heart. You didn't take me seriously. I'm so glad. Now I got it. Oh. And it'll take eternity to get that out. Oh. That's how that works. Oh. David is saying, come on, folks. You see what you're like. Please see even more clearly what God's like. Loving kindness, faithfulness, righteousness, unfathomable, right and correct judgments. You know what else God does? Just to demonstrate his providential mercy. It says in the next phrase, O Lord, you preserve man and beast. Do you ever think about what it takes to sustain living things? Fish of the sea, birds of the sky, animals, insects, and us. You ever think about what it takes to sustain all that? Who do you think does that? And God does this, not just for believers, 
He sustains believers and non-believers alike. For instance, when the sun shines, it just doesn't fall on believers, does it? When the rain uh, flows for, for crops, it's just not the, the farms of believers, is it? He not only authored the, the world, he sustains it. And you know what? And he does it for the people described in the first four verses. This is the providential mercy of God. Now David's ready to explode. I don't think he can contain himself. He gets to verse 7. Oh, he says, how precious is your loving kindness, O God. That's the same word, loving kindness, we read earlier. It's the same word, chesed. But now he's attaching a value to it. He's saying how precious is that commodity. He's saying it is more valuable than silver and gold. Nothing material uh, can equate to the value, the preciousness of your loving kindness, oh, oh God. Now, I'll tell you why this, I think, seemed to be so precious to, to David. He knew he was the, the guy in the first four verses, don't you see? He knew that. And, and now he knows of God's love in spite of that. And if, if David only knew of God's holiness, he could not declare what he did in the next phrase. Look, the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. If all David knew of God, if all you and I know of God was that he's big, mighty, and holy, then we would not, we could not take refuge in the shadow of his wings. Why not? How can an unholy person find safety in the shadow of the wings of a holy God? Listen to me. If you get a ticket and you're summoned to appear in a court of law before some magistrate, you're not running to be under the protected shadow of the wings of that magistrate. You're being summoned for judgment. You don't even want to show. If there was any capacity for you to get out of it, you'd run the other way. You're not attracted to the judge. You're running from the judge. If all we know of God is that he's a holy judge, nobody's going to run to him except by constraint. But what have you added to his attributes, not only his holiness, but his chesed love, then you would be prone to to seek refuge, even from your own sin, under the shadow of his wings. He becomes the safe place. David knew this. You know what's terrible? Many Christians, I don't think, get this. We have a capacity of the bigness and might and holiness of God, which is quite commendable. But you have to take the totality of God. You have to add to it his gentleness, his kindness, his patience. You have to add his chesed love, which says, I know what you're made of. Do you know what I'm made of? I'm made of chesed love. Are you wedded to me by faith in the Son? Well, of course, of course. (laughs) Then you are a recipient of my loyal covenant love, though you be disloyal. David says, boy, that's precious. And then he says in verse 8, they drink their fill of the abundance of your house. When you take refuge under the wings of almighty God, you are in essence in his home, under his umbrella. Again, this is all poetry. David is saying, what do you find there? You find that God in his house has laid out a table. (laughs) filled with nourishing and sustaining things. They drink their fill, and you give them to drink of the river of your delights. 
When we sup from God's table, we find bread and milk and meat and sustenance. You know what we find in God's house? The word of God. I think that's one of the things implied here in this poetic expression. Apart from God, when you're excluded from his home, you haven't come to be under his umbrella. You don't have access to his word in a way that you can understand. When you come to know the author of the text, when you come to know the enfleshed word of God, Jesus, then your eyes are open to the written word of God, the Bible. And that is food and drink for a parched soul. Jesus is the bread of life and daily bread to live by are his words, don't you see? That's what he opens up to us. And then you see in that phrase, you give them to drink of the river of your delights. I'm going to tell you that is a throwback to what human experience was in the Garden of Eden. How do I get that? See that word delights? In Hebrew, it's the word Eden. By the way, Sage's middle name is Eden. It's really cool. I'm glad she came to class today. Sage Eden. It's the Hebrew word right here for delights. It's as if David is saying, oh, God. We are people characterized by the first four verses. You are a God characterized by the rest. One of your intents in spite of us is to bring us to paradise restored and regained. We forfeited paradise in the Garden of Eden through sin. Humankind has made an effort to get back to it through its own own wit and wisdom, and we've made a mess of life. But, oh God, you're going to do it. You're going to restore paradise. That's called heaven. It'll be a time when we will be sustained. All our needs will be satisfied. There no longer will be any mourning or crying or pain. There won't be any death. It'll all pass away. God will bring us back to Eden. Why? Verse 9, for with you is the fountain of life. It surely means God is the author of life, but not only that. It means he's the sustainer of life, but not only that. It means he's the supplier of all that we need for life to be meaningful. I still remember what life was like for me before I was a Christian. It wasn't life. You get up in the morning. You do things during the day that make you feel guilty at night. You go to sleep. You wake up the next day. You do the same stuff. You're ill at ease. You're empty. You have no purpose. You don't know what it's all about. It's not life, it's an existence. In fact, you think about terminating it. Why is it like that? (laughs) If God is the fountain of life, and all you have is an awareness of his existence, but you've made him irrelevant to the formula of your own life, (laughs) then the giver of life cannot give a meaningful life, won't give a meaningful life. That's what it's like for unsaved people. You know what else they miss? Understanding. Look, in your light, we see light. In the light which comes from being in a relationship with you, we have understanding of all things we would not have understanding about. Like the natural light which illuminates the darkness, so too being in a relationship with the light of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, enlightens our minds so that we think 
differently. We can see things through the mind of Christ. Please don't take this for granted. Listen to me. I remember before I was a Christian, I would surely have been in favor of abortion, for sure. I mean, come on. If the baby's not timely, not wanted, not affordable, going to cramp your style, come on. Sure, abortion's cool. I would have had a totally different notion of marriage. You know, this idea of one man, one woman, reserving themselves for one another. Come on, that just seems like a waste of equipment. I mean, God gave you the equipment, use it, right? That's what I would think, for crying out loud. I mean, I mean, you can hang out with one more than another, but what's the deal about trying on others for size? I don't understand what the problem there. You're not hurting anybody, are you? Man, you're like that too. Don't give me don't look at me like I'm some wretch. I, I'm in a I'm in a room full of wretches. I mean, we're 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 people over the first four verses. Don't you get? I mean, you know, when it came to money, what's wrong with debt? Look at here. If my eyes tell me something looks good in the store, so what if I can't afford it? I can go in debt to get it. What if I can't pay it? That's why God created bankruptcy. I mean, I would have made all that. You were just bankrupt. But isn't that cheating your credit? What do I care, man? He's got money. All that kind of stuff. On and on and on. You had the same thinking. Don't look at me like that. We're, pe- we're, first, we're people of the first four verses. Don't, don't you? But, but then you come to be in the brace of the fountain of life. And in his light, we see light. So that now I'm persuaded abortion is murder. I'm persuaded that marriage is not my idea. It's holy in that it emanates from God. It's meant to depict his irreversible covenant bond with us. It's meant to be one man, one woman, irreversibly bound. Now I have God's mind on finances. Debt is enslavement. Jesus wants us to be enslaved, mastered by no one but himself. Can you see how all that's changed? And for you, hey, by the way, if you don't see those things in your life, you may not be saved. I don't want to ever cause a saved person to have doubts. I, I want an unsaved person to really question whether they're saved. If they ain't, it's a big difference. If you're not seeing these things in your life, you may just be hanging out in church. You may be someone who acknowledges the existence of God, but not his relevance in your, in your life. So in your light, we see light. Now, First four verses, this is what people are like. Next section, this is what God is like. Closing section, verses 10 and on, a prayer. Now David prays. Check it out. Oh, continue your loving kindness to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. Now that prayer only makes sense coupled with verse 11. Look, let not the foot of pride come upon me. And let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. Ah, foot and hand. He's speaking of oppressive manifestations put upon the godly by the ungodly. He's saying, God, I'm in trouble and I know it. Even though I know you and have you and you are my own, I live in an increasingly evil world where the foot of pride and arrogant, ungodly people can come to, to so be impressed upon me and their hands, the hand of the wicked can so influence me, drive me and so on, that I could water down things, compromise, even walk away from you. Oh God, I'm in a desperate situation. Evil is on the rise 
It's the majority point of view. My point of view is the minority. Not only that, people are persecuting me for following you. Sometimes they want to kill me. I know people who are being killed, David would say, as they are today, for following you. Oh, God, I fear that I might just say, if I can't beat them, join them. But I don't want to. So he makes a personal petition and by extension a petition to all those who are trying who are trying to, to walk in a godly, not ungodly, not ungodly manner. So he prays. A- and then something really interesting happens in the closing verse. There, which begs the question, there, where? There, the doers of iniquity have fallen. They have been thrust down and cannot rise. There, in the future, there, at the place of judgment, there were all people, even the arrogant one who's flattering himself by thinking there is no judgment, there, everyone will stand before you and have to give an account. And what will happen? The evildoers will fall and be thrust down into hell. David is given a future glimpse into a horrific reality but a reality nonetheless. Now, I have not been given that prophetic glimpse into the future, and perhaps you haven't either. And I don't need to. I'll tell you why. Because David got it, recorded. It's preserved for folks like you and me down to this very day. And now I can see, oh, God, you want us to hang in there. You want us to, to be strong in your strength. Hang, cling to you. Cling to one another. Be encouraging to one another. Not compromise. Stand by biblical convictions. All the rest, no matter what happens, even though we might take some heat, even though evil is on the rise, you want to say, because you've told us in advance the fate of those who are ungodly, and I don't want to share in that fate. So you know what this is? It's a psalm, not only of contrast, it's a psalm of choice. You've got to choose. How are you going to live life? in alignment with the God described here or apart from him. Those are the choices. Those are the choices. Do your own thing or come to be in alignment with God. The outcomes are entirely different. Condemnation for the one who lives ungodly. That means moving apart from God. Condemnation is what it says. But for the one who enters into the, into the embrace of God, all these wonderful things, life from the fountain of life, sustenance in it, light from the giver of light, provision, protection, the experience of God's chesed, love, and emunah, faithfulness and mercy. What's it going to be? Now today, just about everyone, as I mentioned, who's polled says, I believe in God, leave me alone, back off. I believe in God, I just don't believe in Jesus. Now, there's a real problem there. See, here's the deal. You don't get points with God by believing in him. In fact, if you believe he exists, all you get is not called a fool. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. All you get is, no one's going to call you a fool. You don't get points beyond that just by believing in his existence. And you cannot say, I believe in God, and... Uh, disregard what God has said. God has said, there is one God and one mediator between man and God. The man, Christ Jesus. God, who you said you believe in, said that. 
You cannot say you believe in God and disbelieve in what he said. It doesn't work that way. It's not just a matter of believing in God that earns us salvation. One has to believe in the means by which God is providing a connection with him. And this idea of all roads lead to Rome sounds really good. That's a dark mind. No way. Truth is a very narrow concept. If all things are true, nothing is true. If you think coming to him through Mohammed is as valid as coming to him through Christ, one of us is desperately wrong. We can't be both right. Come on. Truth is, truth claims are, it's mutually exclusive. What's it going to be? What you think or what God says? What's it going to be? This is a psalm of joys. You know what I fear? That people who sit in here and come to church Sunday after Sunday haven't made the right choice. What are you talking about? I sing, I give, I carry a Bible. You believe in God. So does Satan. Do you see evidence of him taking up his habitation in your life to the extent that you have a transformed life or things change? I didn't say you're perfect. No one's saying that. Is your mind changing? Is your values, are your values changing? What's up? What's up? Are you living Monday differently than the Mondays you used to live? Or is it just a Sunday deal? I cannot believe all the people in this church are redeemed. I refuse to believe it. Too many don't act like it. I don't see that at all. I feel terrified, terrified that maybe we aren't putting enough loving pressure on people to get it together. Listen to me. I am really, really, really going to be busy this week. But I don't care how busy. I'd make time for you if you, if you, if, if you want to talk. If you say, hey, I know about all this stuff. I got all the accoutrements of Christianity. I got a Bible. I sing. I do whatever the deal is. But I don't have this sense of relevance of God in my life, of a daily walk. I don't feel myself consulting what would Jesus do. I'm like a practical atheist. I sort of believe God is there, but he has no relevance to my... Maybe I'm not saved. Yeah, maybe you're not. Let's talk, let's talk about it. You can text. You can email. Don't sext. Do the text. <laughs> you can email. By the way, anyone of normal intelligence who thinks texts and emails are private, what? Even the NSA is listening in on our conversation. Are you kidding me? Nobody know. You think, well, I'll press the delete button. It doesn't get deleted. It's just from your screen. Are you kidding me? I get certain emails, political stuff, this and that. I never put a response. If I want to respond, I'll call the person. But I never, I never counsel online. Uh, Stuart, I just found out my husband is having an affair. I'm thinking of divorcing him. What do you think? In 25 words or less, right? <gasps> you put something there. Someone takes out a part of it, like maybe her husband. Next thing you know, a pastor at Sagemont Church counseled my wife to leave me. I never do that. I'll call. Oh, dear lady, this is a terrible thing you're going through. I think you deserve more time than I could give in an email. Let's get together. You don't want, you watch out for the electronic stuff. Are you kidding me? Someone sends political humor. I never say real funny, you know, cool. I delete the thing. I don't need someone tracking my political points of view at Sagemont Church in this day. Are you kidding me? No, if we get together over lunch, especially if you buy. <laughs> that's the way it is. 
I'll tell you anything you want to know. You know, but I gotta, I gotta frisk you first to make sure you're not bugged. You know what I'm saying? But watch out for the electronic. Watch out for the like electronic stuff. It's just look, folks. Here's the deal. Um, if you're not seeing the active movement of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ in your life on a daily basis, why not? Why not? So I'd surely be glad to chat with you if you would, if you would like. This is a psalm of choice. Did you make the right choice? He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Psalm 36 says just what First John says, because it's truth for every generation. Are you aligned with God through Jesus the Son? Or are you his adversary? You say, no, I'm in the middle. That's a middle of your own creation. There is no middle. There's only two options. Make a choice. This is a psalm of choice. Have you accepted Jesus as your personal savior? Yes or no? If the answer is yes, do you have evidence? Would it stand up in a court of law? Is there proof? Okay, it's time to stop. God bless you folks. That's a good psalm, is it not? The Bible is good. See, these are the things we sup from when in the house of God. Unbelievable. People don't get bread of life like this. You didn't, I didn't. I don't mean the teaching. I mean the word. This is the word of God, don't you see? Lord Jesus, we're grateful. You surely saved us from the penalty of sin, but not, that's not all. You saved us from purposelessness, meaninglessness, darkness, a depraved mind. Now we are less prone to listen to the voice calling us to transgress and much more prone to listen to your voice, which calls us to obey. You've saved us from that which characterized us in the first four verses. You did it because you're the God characterized in verse 5 and on. Thank you for your chesed love, your emunah, faithfulness, your righteousness, and your unfathomable judgments. We really look forward to seeing you face to face. Until then, would you distinguish us as being inhabited by you? so that people will take a look and ask us for an explanation for the hope that is within us. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you folks. Hope to see you next time.